The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This week's episode of Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is brought to you by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, a handbook for your whole life which is now available on Amazon and Kindle. Make ceremonies matter more and become a certified life cycle celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Mathieu Ricard, is a molecular biologist, Tibetan Buddhist monk, humanitarian, and author of a number of books, including the just-released Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. His article adapted from that book, entitled The Evolution of Altruism, When We Ask If Animals Have Souls, We Forget That Being Humane Is Much Older Than Being Human, is a featured article in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Mathieu Ricard, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. So glad to speak with you. Well, it is absolutely an honor to talk to you directly. You are interviewed so often that I hesitate to ask you to recount stories you've told so many times before. Yet, even with a show as brief as ours, it would be helpful to our audience to hear a bit of your story. So let me start with this. You grew up in a largely secular home. Your dad, Jean-Francois, was a leading French intellectual. You turned to science and earned a doctorate in molecular biology, and then you shifted gears to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. What were you looking for? What was driving you, do you think? Well, you know, as a teenager, you don't have much idea about happiness, altruism. You're just trying to discover what life is about. And, you know, basically, you know what you don't want, sort of a boring, meaningless life, but you don't know exactly where you want to go. So it was more at the stage of exploration that I was when I was 20. But when I saw a series of documentaries made for the French television by a friend of mine, Arnaud Desjardins, who uh, filmed for six months all the great Tibetan masters who had left Tibet following the communist invasion, I thought, oh, here are, you know, 20 Saint Francis of Assisi, 20 Socrates, whoever you might consider as a most inspiring figure in past history, but they were alive today. So that's why I decided to go and meet them. And that was, of course, the best thing I did so far in my life. And I went, when I was doing my PhD at Pasteur Institute for six years, every summer I would go there. And when I finished my PhD, I said, okay, my postdoc, I will do it in the Himalayas. Do you think you were looking for enlightenment? Does that play any oh, no. role in your practice? No. Much more modest. <laughs> Much more modest. I was just uh, inspired by people, you know, were the living example of what they teach. It's mostly the quality of the presence. I was not asking uh, intellectual questions. You know, if you are in the presence of someone who, even though, should simply sit there, 
like a mountain of serenity, but just exude nothing but wisdom and compassion, then somehow you said there's something there that I need to explore further. It could become just a, even one thousandth of what those persons are. And it's quite different than admiring, you know, someone for his skill, like playing the piano or being a great mathematician or great artist or even a gardener or whatever. Because you find among those people the same distribution as in any other sort of group of people, of wonderful, warm-hearted people and not quite difficult ones. But with a spiritual master, you can't have a, a, a wonderful spiritual master who is grumpy all the time and that doesn't work. <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama a couple of years ago, we were both teaching at a conference in uh, New Delhi. And yeah, I, I don't think grumpy is a word I would use for him, certainly. So let's turn our attention to your new book, Altruism. If I read you correctly, you say that altruism is an essential part of human nature. Yet, as I understand it, Buddhism denies any idea of essentiality. There's no true nature, only the continuing emptying of, of shunya. So help me understand how altruism and emptiness work together for you. Well, emptiness uh, doesn't mean the absence of qualities. But the Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha, is filled with, imbued with, could say, perfection in the sense of perfect wisdom, infinite compassion, infinite love. And so when you speak of emptiness, it doesn't mean the absence of things like an empty pot. It means that anything you might think of, whether it's outer phenomena or the mind or even those qualities, they are not existing as entities imbued with intrinsic solid existence. That's what it means. It appears, yet it is void. But within what appears, there could be hate, there could be infinite love, there could be delusion, there could be wisdom. Neither of those is imbued with solid existence, but it, nevertheless, there's a huge difference between an awakened mind and a mind that is deluded and sort of roams endlessly in suffering in samsara, that is the con existence conditioned by ignorance. So can you simply explain to me the difference between an awakened mind and one that's roaming in samsara? Uh, well, first of all, it begins with, uh, you know, a reification of reality. I mean, you suppose uh, if the ultimate nature of mind is this pure awareness, sort of non-dual, self-illuminating sort of uh, awareness or awakening, then if you start to reify, that means you can start to split with the subject and object, and this, this gap becomes more and more solid to your perception. And then once you have that, you get attraction for what seems to be favorable to you, repulsion for what seems to be a threat, and those two impulses will soon grow uh, or diversify, we could say, into what Buddhism calls the five mental toxins, uh, because they are toxic to our happiness and that of others, of course, suffering, which are hatred, craving, uh, lack of discernment, uh, envy, arrogance, and those are just five of the main mental toxins, so which leads to suffering. So in a way, this first ignorance which solidifies the notion of an individual self, which attributes permanence to impermanent phenomena, which believe that uh, either the self or any phenomena could exist on its own as a unitary, autonomous, permanent entity, all those distortions of reality, in the end, inevitably lead, lead to suffering. And by erasing those or freeing myself from those to whatever extent I can do that, compassion arises of itself. So, yes, when you are free from delusion, free from suffering, there's no any more sort of barriers between the notion of self and others. Then what else but 
anything that comes to the mind, any any uh, word that comes to your mouth, any any action that comes out of that, it cannot can be only beneficial because how could something malevolent come out of pure awareness? So let me ask you this: I know that you write about the distinction between sort of the evolutionary biologist's notion that uh, nature could or could not, depending on who you talk to, uh, select for altruism, that you don't anchor altruism in Darwin's notion of natural selection. You anchor it in human intention, which I imagine uh, grows. Is that fair or am I wrong? Yes, it's a little bit. You know, let's precise it. Yes, First of all, altruism please. is an intention. It's sort of what we call psychological altruism, because um, behavior, which what you will see from outside and what most evolutionists consider, uh, because they don't look so much at intentions, uh, a behavior could be beneficial to someone who is related to you or someone who is not related to you. Beneficial in the sense that your action will bring some benefit to the other person. It might cost you something. It may not. But that benefit, if we speak, for instance, of human, could be motivated, say, by the, de the desire to please someone, seduce someone, flatter someone, and eventually, I don't know, cheat that person or get a, a inheritance, if <laughs> something like that. So... Only looking at the, at the behavior, some beneficial or some might be harmful, may not tell you about the intention. For instance, if, if a mother pushes her child violently out of the way, if you look just like the, at the behavior, it might seem harmful because the child will fall on the side of the road. But if she does that because doing so, she saved the child from being run over from a car, the intention, of course, was uh, altruistic. So now, when you come to evolution and the uh, the difficulty that evolution had to explain altruism. Actually, Darwin was much more uh, close to uh, an understanding of altruism, even though he said it's, it poses a challenge. Because he keeps on speaking about cooperation. There's even a beautiful quote that I have in the book, saying that we could conceive to education, to extend benevolence, he calls, he calls that sympathy, I think, to others than our our kings, and even, he says, to extend it to other species as well. So it's quite remarkable, and it's very much in contrast with the neo-Darwinism and even further social Darwinism, you know, the survival of the fittest, everyone for themselves, and or selfish genes, of course, how gene could be selfish, they are no more selfish than a packet of biscuits, you know, genes are, have no intention. So all these things, I think, now have changed. The most recent works in evolution uh stress much more the, the value of cooperation throughout evolution to achieve, uh, you know, to, uh, as being the architect of evolution in terms of getting uh, increased degrees of complexity. And it seems that now evolution is where we want to go. So the evolution, again, I, I went through the book as, as I tried to understand it as best I could. Uh, the evolution can be assisted, it seems to me, by practice. Cultivating compassion. Um, well, yes. yes. When you speak of change, say you want, we have the potential for altruism. We see that very well in children. They are more predisposed to like people, to appreciate people. Even it was shown with six months old. Uh, they, they prefer people who behave nicely to each other than people who sort of are nasty to each other. You do that with puppets and with all kinds of stratagems. So we have that disposition. But yet we can say, okay, that's fine. But, you know, there's some progress to be made in the world regarding altruism. So how can we achieve that? There's two ways. First of all, of course, individuals have to change. We cannot just change institutions and sort of put a top-down 
totalitarian way of saying, okay, now everyone has to be happy, everyone has to be altruistic. That's never going to work. So individuals have to change. And that's possible through mind training, through contemplation, through various spiritual techniques, or through just secular mind training. But then, even you have achieved that, you might say, well, so what? You know, a few people who do that, great, and that's nice they are among us in society, but that's not going to change the whole picture. But still, when those individual, like-minded, say, altruistic people and cooperators achieve a critical mass in society, now there's a phenomenon that, oh, this idea seems morally right. You know, I, I, would, I feel uncomfortable to say that we must be damn selfish. I don't care about anything. I don't care about poverty. I don't care about the environment. You can't say that anymore. So then there is a tipping point in, in the culture. And then you come to the evolution of culture, which concerns society. And those articulation of those two, individual change and cultural change, is really one of the things that I, I was most uh, enthusiastic to discover when doing the research uh, on the book, is the process of evolution of culture, which is Darwinian, but which goes much faster than genes. You, know, you could have evolution of culture within 10, 20 years, a generation, and it's what we need now. So... How do we do that? How do we, what's the practice, uh, that, that you recommend? I mean, is it, are we talking about meta meditation, loving kindness meditation, or is yes. it something? So, so tell us how that works, how people could practice that. Well, you know, it's not something so mysterious. I mean, who, I mean, of course, all of us uh, at, at some moment, and obviously more often than not, uh, felt, uh, some unconditional love, where people meta in, in Pali and metri in Sanskrit. That is, uh, well, you think of someone or you see someone like a young child and you feel unconditional love for that child. I mean, may that child be good, be safe, be healthy, uh, flourish in life, may he be spared, uh, you know, all kinds of suffering and obstacles. So then, but normally we do think that for a while when we see the child, for instance, but soon after something else comes in mind or you know, we, we get up or somebody comes in the room or something happens, <laughs> telephone rings. So really that state of mind, which is very, clear, sort of limpid, uh, fills our mental landscape, doesn't stay more than, say, a minute or so. So that's not the way to cultivate something. So instead of letting it come and go, we will nurture, we'll generate that state in our mind with the full quality, and then we'll nurture it for 5, 10, 20, half an hour, <laughs> you know, a few hours if you if you like, <laughs> during the day, and doing so, you will change. And then the second step is to Realize, oh, you know, I don't want to suffer. I don't want this child to suffer. But every sen- no, no, no sentient beings want to suffer. So if I value the happiness and the, the absence of suffering of this child, why should I not value that in other, other persons, other sentient beings? Even I don't know them, even they sometimes misbehave, or even sentient beings like animals who also differentiate between pain and, and well-being. Why should I not be concerned by then? And then you extend that that benevolence to all. So let me try to get more specific. I understand what you're saying. I appreciate what you're saying. But I would like to leave our listeners with more direction. So let's say I've got 10 minutes or 20 minutes to do this loving kindness practice. Do you suggest sitting on a cushion, sitting in a chair? Is there specific, like in meta practice, there are sayings that you would say, you know, uh, wishing a certain person happiness and relief from suffering or something like that. Can you help us? If someone yes. wanted to start it this afternoon, what so would they do? The posture, you know, it doesn't really matter, except it should be 
a posture that is not too tense, not too relaxed. You know, if you lay down on the couch, you may, you may meditate, but you may also very soon fall asleep. So a sort of balanced posture. Usually we, in the Tibetan Buddhism, we keep our eye open because we don't want to sort of get rid of the phenomenal world. Why not? We want to engage with it without focusing on anything special. And then you just do that. You focus, you, with phrases and sentences, sometimes we do recite them, even many times, like a hundred thousand times in Tibetan Buddhism. But what really matters is not the sentence that uh, matters. It's if you can just fill your mind with unconditional benevolence, you don't really need the sentence. It's kind of a helper, a reminder if needed. The main thing is once this is fully present in, a, in your mind, in a vivid way, is to nourish that. If it declines, it becomes a bit more dull, not so clear, like, you know, like murky water. You revive it. You make it very vivid, very clear, very present. And then if you are distracted, which is the other obstacle, your mind gets too agitated, you come back to it. You know, just a little bit like you see a butterfly is drinking the nectar of a flower and for some, no reason, sort of flies away and come back. So our mind has tendency to do that. So just come back to loving kindness, to metta meditation and nurture that again and again with discipline. So the only secret, I would say, is uh, to persevere. There's no other <laughs> trick or secret or, or advice. Persevere, persevere and that's how you change and that's how those who studied the effect of mind training in neuroscience have also shown that that's how your brain will change. So somehow, uh, you know, there's a trace of that uh, in your physiology as well. So, Matt, too, I sort of dragged you into all kinds of philosophical discussions. Let's talk about something more practical. You do a lot of humanitarian work. Why don't you tell us something about that? Yes, we have an organization. First, I wanted to call it uh, Compassion in Action when we started in France. And there, you know, they're very, very worried about religious matters. So they say, oh, it's too religious. So I call it Karuna, which means the same thing, because Karuna means compassion, but nobody knew about it. So anyway, for the last 15 years, we have accomplished many projects in Tibet, Nepal, India. Uh, we built uh, many schools and clinics and home for the elderly, bridges. And just to give you a quick example, now we treat 120,000 patients a year in the various dispensary and clinic we have done. And recently, you know, there was uh, two major earthquakes. And even today, there's another earthquake that happened in Nepal, a smaller one, but still people now again sleep outside. Just the last news I got this morning, we were able to help 180,000 people in 450 villages. And meaning that for each of those 170,000 people, we bought food rations for at least 15 days, uh, medical help for those who needed, some shelter like tarpaulins for protect from the rain for those who needed. And then in, in the long term, we'll help them, them to rebuild their life and we will uh, have community projects like, such as rebuilding schools and so forth. So this is a wonderful undertaking. So of course, we will need help to continue that over you know, the coming years. And people can find out about that at your website? Absolutely. They go to Karuna dash Sechen S H E C H E N dot org and it's very simple so when you are there and you can see uh, you will always be able to see the latest news about the activities in Nepal as well as India and Tibet. Fantastic. Very important work. My guest today was Matthew Ricard. You can learn more about his work at MatthewRicard.org. Matthew Ricard, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. It was a great pleasure and honor to be with you. Thank you so much. This week's show was sponsored by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute. 
Learn how to create meaningful rituals for people of any faith and none and become a certified life cycle celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. And check out the Foundation's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, a handbook for your whole life, now available at Amazon and Kindle. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And don't forget to download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.